This is what God has made us. Through, through Christ. Brothers and sisters. In His one and only Son. We've come to worship Him. And we've been focusing over the last three weeks or so. Primarily on the Old Testament. And thinking about a, a theme. that uh, Through the series that I'm calling the foundations of the faith. And this main theme, overarching theme, is that God has been building since the beginning of time a kingdom through various different covenants, a name given to a certain kind of relationship that He enters into with His people. People that are no better than anyone else, but by His grace, people that He's chosen to enter into a relationship with. And those who are in this covenant, starting with Adam, who is the head of the human race, are in relationship with God by faith in Him. That is the only way that we are in a relationship with the living God. It's by faith in His Word, primarily. But we saw in the Garden of Eden that Satan, he has aimed his attack at the foundation of society, of the human race itself. The first human covenant, which is known as marriage. We saw that language there, husband and wife, right there in the first chapter, in the second chapters of Genesis. Satan has obviously done this because he's still making an attack on what is true marriage today, and by extension on family, the product of this holy union we call marriage. And so, this, this discussion about family and marriage, this whole concept, this is not just a cultural matter, this is something that supersedes the ages, goes back to the beginning of time. And it's greater than our very own experiences, but it includes our experiences, that we need to think carefully about it. But we don't need to be discouraged about this attack, because God will build His kingdom. And Jesus said, I will build my church. Amen. And that's a confidence that we can stand on. So I want to invite you to turn with me as we continue this journey to chapter 12 of Genesis. We very briefly looked at chapter 11, but we'll be moving into chapter 12. And as you turn there, this is what I hope that we'll continue to see, not only in this sermon, but in many of the following sermons to come as we read and study the Bible for ourselves as well in our own personal times of devotion that God's covenant people are not only believers who make up His kingdom but are a genuine spiritual family as I've been saying we are the family of God that He has been since the beginning of time creating engrafting an everlasting family of faith and that's founded on His grace. And so I've entitled this sermon, The Family of God by Grace Alone. And I have just three points that I want us to look at from a number of chapters in Genesis. And the first one is this. We have one Father. And secondly, we have one faith. Lastly, we have one future inheritance. So let's begin looking at this first point. We have one Father. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 8. 
The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills of East Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me once more? Father, I call on you now once more to do what you can through your word which is to speak to our hearts in a changing way. Sustain and strengthen our faith. Give us greater faith by your grace through your word. We ask you to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we can see, one thing we notice, as with Adam and with Noah, is that God comes to Abraham. Abram at this time. Sounds rather simple, but it is God who takes the initial step in this covenant relationship and then speaks his word of promise to Abram, calling Abram to himself. Notice that Abram was not seeking for God. There is no evidence of that. Abram was not seeking for God. In fact, he was a pagan which is why the repetition of he built an altar to the Lord is there. To show that there's a change that's taken place in his life now that comes from God. We, we were looking at the Tower of Babel last week and we saw that Genesis 11, 1 tells us at that time there was one language throughout the whole human race. And they were misusing that language along with the rest of their wisdom to build a city to make a great name for themselves, for their self-glory. So God in judgment had come down and confused that language into many languages, something that he reverses in the day of Pentecost, which we'll get to in a while or in a few weeks. But he had, in judgment, given them many languages which forced them to stop building the city and spread out into many different peoples. Abraham was one of these many different people. But look at what happened when God called him. Look at how God calls once again another man to himself and gives him this command to to go and spread across the earth and make his name great. 
and how Abraham responds in faith. Just think about this whole journey. God calls Abram at age 75 to uproot himself and his entire family. Think about how well established he would have been by this point in his life. How many family members, animals, possessions, and so forth they would have had. How many physical challenges he might have had at 75. They had to organize and to move. And there was no plane or train or bus or car. And the Lord said, go to this place that you actually don't know. Just think about that. And to add to that, it was a 1,500 mile, roughly 1,500 mile journey from where Abraham stood when the word of the Lord came to him to where God had called him to go. They didn't know much about where they were going, but what they did know, or at least could have guessed, was that both the natural layout of the land and the peoples that they would have had to interact with would have made this journey extremely dangerous and hard in a number of ways. This journey of faith, which you can find in Genesis 12 through 22, which I encourage you to read, and the other passages that I'll I'll be referencing, is something that is recorded to strengthen us in our faith in God. This is what God called Abraham to do, but he also gives him very precious promises. And look at the nature of these promises in verses 2 through 3. I will. You see the definite article of that word, will. Not I might. Not I I hope this works out, but I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will curse those who curse you, and so forth. This is the nature of God's word alone, of God's promises. His words are not like ours. They're trustworthy because they are the revelation of his own character which is trustworthy. Job, in, in, in Job 42.2, after he started a little bit to question God in circumstances which none of us will ever face, not to diminish our challenges, but Job had it rough. <laughs> and Job says this at the end when God has shown him just a little bit of his majesty. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. But Job finds comfort in that because God is not only sovereign, but he's also a good father to those who trust in him. He's always committed to doing what he says. And perhaps someone listening to me in this room or on Facebook or whatever social media platform it might be, or on the radio, perhaps you've had an earthly father who is not trustworthy who's broken countless promises and commitments to you, your mother, family. Sometimes we break our commitments. Sometimes all of us do this. In fact, all of us have broken our word at some point. To God, how many times have we said, God, this year I'm going to do X, Y, Z. We break our commitments to God, to our spouses, to our children, but not God. He is the faithful Father 
to his children eternally. And even though Abram, who becomes Abraham, is known as the father of faith, he proves that he also failed many times. His faith wavered. For example, he listened to his wife, and together in unbelief, they acted impatiently. Instead of waiting on the promised child from Sarah, they try to get one from Hagar, their servant. And then we see later on the brokenness in the life of Hagar and Ishmael that comes from this. Although God is also good to them. And later Abraham allows two powerful leaders at different times to sleep with his wife out of fear for possible death instead of honoring her and their marriage. So not the greatest hero after all, is he? But through Abraham's imperfect faith, we see that it is a real faith. And we learn that real faith always travels down a very narrow, hard path of gradual, upward faithfulness, which is sustained by the presence of our faithful Father Himself. He walks with us in His grace, by the Spirit, through His Word. And in this sense, it is good to say that God is Himself the ultimate Father of the faith. Which brings us to the second point. We have one faith. What exactly is faith? How would you define faith? If someone was asking me that question. This is how Hebrews 11.1 answers the question for us. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. Faith is not some kind of blind, irrational leap into the dark. Sometimes you hear people talk about a leap of faith. It's not a shot in the dark. Neither is faith separate from reason. Real faith is confident and sure about its beliefs. But it's not a confidence that is mustered up from within. Furthermore, saving faith is confident in the word of God. That is the connection from which we get the confidence and the hope and the assurance that defines true Christian faith, true godly faith. Just a little further down in that same passage of Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, we see these words, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will come, will be reckoned. Abraham, here's the word, reasoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Notice two points here. Firstly, Abraham used his reason to decide what he would confidently hope in. But second, this this reason, this faith was not something that's abstract. Sometimes we think about faith and grace as some sort of abstract objects. No. His faith is described in verse 17. 
Look at Hebrews 11:17. It says Abraham is described as he who embraced the promises. Again, it is God the Father who is speaking through his word and we embrace those particular truths that are spoken from his word which give us the confidence and the hope and the assurance that comes from God alone. These same promises go all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we started. Genesis 3.15 The promise of that serpent crusher. And they extend throughout the ages and are finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. And He says that we can have no relationship with God. No no way that we can call God our Father except through faith in Him. These are the words spoken of concerning the, the new covenant by Christ Himself. And so that's why we as the church refer to God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in Heaven. Because those who have faith have received adoption, have been given the grace of God to become His children. But saving faith also transforms us. It proves itself through works, through righteousness, and gradually proves that God reigns in our lives and not sin. Paul speaks about this in Romans 6 where he says, Sin will no longer reign over you. For you are no longer under that, but you are under grace. And so we see Abraham's faith, weak as it might be at times, is real. He left his homeland to travel to an unknown country, setting a pattern for his family to follow God's word and to worship God. We see him doing that as soon as they reach the the new country. And then later in chapter 15 of Genesis, we see Abraham bringing animals to God to be sacrificed in the first section of Genesis 15 there. You read those, those words. Abraham brings animals which are sacrificed as God continues to establish His covenant with him. It's an act of faith. And then in chapter 17, we see the symbol of circumcision being given. And Abraham proves his faith in this God again by circumcising himself at age 99 and all the males of his household to symbolize that those who are in covenant relationship with God have been cut off from the world in a sense. We are in the world but not of it. God has separated us to be a people who live for Him. We're not defined by the world around us, but by His Word alone. And it was also this time, around this time, that God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And finally, we see this ultimate test of faith in chapter 22, where He's asked to sacrifice His one and only Son. He was about to sacrifice His one and only Son. The knife was raised with an intention to sacrifice him. But God provided a ram. Abraham was going to do it because he believed that the the one through whom all the promises 
would come, that God would raise Isaac back from the dead. He believed in resurrection power before we see any evidence of a resurrection. That's the nature of faith, of true faith. It's a true element of saving faith. So if you're, if you're listening, again, I have this other question for you to think about. Do you believe that? Sometimes these concepts become so regular that we almost just want to answer yes because we're supposed to. But do you actually believe that? That if you trust in Jesus Christ, God will raise all the elements of your body and glorify them. That is one of the key elements of saving faith, belief in the resurrection. I could ask a different question to get to the same point. Are you ready to take your last breath? Are you ready to die? Is it something that frightens you? Or are you prepared to meet your maker? We should ask ourselves these questions and think about it. I'm not saying we should just want to die. We should want to live and make the most of our time as God gives us life. We shouldn't be pleading for death. But we should live ready for it. Another key element of true faith is that Abraham looked towards something greater than Canaan. He didn't just look to that unknown land he was moving to. But the same passage, Hebrews 11, tells us in verse 16, all those who live by faith are looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Is that how we would describe our lives? That we're looking for a better country. Not a better country than Cayman and moving to some other country on planet Earth, but a heavenly one. And I know that, especially when we live in a beautiful country like this, with all the social media outlets we have, we're bombarded with posters and pictures and videos of all the amazing real estate. And we can spend hours dreaming as if we long to live in some of these places. But those are not the better countries. They are nothing by comparison. Are we more moved along by our earthly home, our earthly investments or achievements, a good retirement package, a great earthly legacy? Or are we motivated by the life to come? Do we see our heavenly home as truly better? This would lead to greater contentment in our circumstances, along with greater enthusiasm to live for God in the here and now, to share His gospel and other benefits that we have in Christ too. But this is why Jesus supersedes any of our so-called heroes of faith. This is why all Scripture is about Him. Because God sent Him from this heavenly country. The Father sent His one and only Son from this heavenly country. And Jesus says that He had no place to lay His head in his years of life on earth. He had no place to call his home here. He perfectly 
in the midst of those circumstances, trusted and obeyed God's word all his life, spreading his glory and his gospel everywhere he went, looking to that better country, which is what motivated him to live in this one. But he was crushed for our iniquities. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like Isaac, doing what his father said and humbly climbing up on that altar, equally ready to have the knife driven through him, as far as we can tell. Jesus went to the cross trusting in his father's sovereign plan of redemption. And even though it was through wicked and evil false accusations and the sinful hands of men, it was the Father ultimately who placed his one and only Son on the altar of Calvary's cross and drove the dagger of his wrath into him so that Jesus paid in full the sin penalty of whoever will believe in him. And I stress that, whoever will believe. Not those who want to add him to their agendas, but those who will make their agendas about his, who commit their life and show this kind of faith like Abraham. As that old hymn says, faith of our fathers. Do you see the cost of grace? There's no such thing as cheap grace. Do you see the price of redemption? As one modern hymn puts it, see the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. He died that we might live. He was buried and three days later he arose from the, from the grave. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. And after 40 days he ascended back to the Father's right hand where he sits and still faithfully works on our behalf. This is a servant king. How should we be motivated to serve, brothers and sisters, this one who ever lives and serves us, who are deserving of the complete opposite? He's interceding until he returns at an unknown moment to take his new covenant family home with him and to judge those who do not enter this family by faith in him. And he told us that he's going to prepare a better place for us. So finally, thirdly and finally, we have one future inheritance. We have one father. We have one faith. And we have one future inheritance. These final verses of Hebrews 11, if you look at the the last couple verses, it's referring to believers throughout the ages. And by the way, I keep referring to Hebrews 11. We've been studying that in our midweek Bible studies, having a discussion surrounding the truths in that passage of Scripture. And I would encourage anyone who can to make it out It's always an encouragement to have more fellow believers surrounding God's word and fellowshipping like that. And this is what the words say. These 
referring to all the people in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith, as it's called, these people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Why? Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see how this scripture and other passages like this unite believers of every age with the same promises? Our inheritance includes this entire family of faith throughout the ages, existing in a perfected new creation with perfected bodies and souls. That's what it means to be human. Body and soul. This is a a promise of eternal glorification when Christ returns. So, again, what kind of people should we be? Having been saved by such amazing grace. Asking this primarily to the church and any believer who's tuning in. How should we live considering these precious promises? I'm going to take a wild guess and say that in a room like this, in a world like this, we have not always made use of the spiritual resources that we have in Christ. The forgiveness, the grace, maybe gifts and talents that He's given us to serve this body. Maybe we fail to extend the grace that we've received in Christ Jesus to a brother, a sister, a neighbor. Maybe this this morning, maybe today, or recently, or over the last however many years. I encourage you, encourage all of us, that we call upon the Lord. And He will work in our hearts, draw near to the Lord, and He'll draw near to us to strengthen us as a body, as a family, to serve Him. Maybe there are ongoing family and church community issues, years of hurt to work through, to draw near to God once again. And let us be those who strive for an attitude of peace and unity amongst each other as God's family of grace. Hear these words from Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Or some translations say, give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and wrath or rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Let us pray for each other that we would apply these truths to our own hearts and may we be a haven to a world that is suffering from the brokenness of sin as we seek to display the the kind of wholeness that comes only from the great Redeemer we have. We have not yet reached perfection, and we will when Jesus comes. So may this 
reality and may these truths motivate us to continue living all the more as the family of God by grace alone. I'll close now with a few more words from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 through 5. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending your one and only Son to redeem us. We thank you for showing your faithfulness to this and so many other congregations over the years. And we ask now that you would plant these truths deep in our hearts, that we are your family of grace. Help us to think carefully, to reflect and examine and consider whether there are ways that we can serve our brothers and sisters more. That we can understand ways we can use our talents and time to serve this family and by extension this community. Forgive us if we've been selfish in not wanting to do that. But thank you that you have shown us how how much you love us and you serve us through the service of our great high priest whoever lives and intercedes for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took the wrath of God on our behalf. And may this never become just a simple, repeated message to us, but something that moves us, comforts us, quickens us. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would shape us according to these truths starting even now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.